Uh, good morning. In case you don't know, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church, and uh, I am really excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you would, please stand with me as we read from God's Word. We're in the book of John this morning, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe see seated. Uh, if you've been in church in your life um, at all, you have probably heard this passage before. Uh, this story, this account of Jesus turning the water into wine. And so as I was praying this week, as I was praying this morning about what God has for us uh, from this passage, I guess what I would just say this morning is I, in my own life, in the life of my family, and talking to many of you throughout the week, I'll give you just kind of what's on my heart this morning. It is easy to come and just with a fake smile, right? Sing, you are good, you are good. Yes and amen, that is true. But my prayer this morning is that we can move beyond the facade of our life and get to reality. And I'll give you an example. Um, my wife's a school teacher. Um, God bless all of our school teachers here uh, this morning that are going through an, uh, just an interesting year. That's a nice way to put that, I guess. Um, and every day it's been this thing where I call Tracy on the way home. I'm like, how was the day? And it's not been good as the reports. Um, there's been, um, Tracy's been assaulted by her kids many times this week. She teaches four-year-olds, not like a 15-year-old. So don't get too concerned. Be concerned, but not like on a physical level. And, um, it has just been one of those kinds of weeks for my wife. And then of course, in our home. It's one of those weeks where everything you do is a challenge, where it's eight o'clock and you're on the couch and it's time to put the kids to bed, right? And the 25 steps to get there seem insurmountable, correct? I talked to another friend at our church this week and they are driving back and forth to Texas for work. And their life just will not slow down. 
they feel completely overwhelmed by life and work. There are people in this room today, if they're honest, would just say they feel defeated. And the word that we're going to see in this passage, it seems like there's a lack of power in our lives. Like, you know, we go and we do the right things, we know all the things, but at the end of the day, we just feel, in a sense, powerless or weak or like we just can't walk in the joy that we're promised. And then we come to this passage today. And we probably heard this passage before, but I believe that God has a, a unique word for us today through his words. There's a verse in this passage that kind of unlocks what the author is trying to teach us and teach the original audience. Go to verse 11 again. It says here, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And it says here, and he manifested his glory. He manifested his glory. John here, the author, puts the focus again on seeing the glory of Christ. John 1, 29, Luke taught this last week. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Look at Jesus. Behold, he's going to reveal a part of him, a part of his glory to his people. John is trying to get the reader to open their eyes. Okay, what is Jesus showing us through this story? And in the midst of our lives, which can feel like a real slog, and we can feel sometimes hopeless and powerless, what does Jesus reveal about himself in this passage that we as his people can cling to and put our hope in? You see, that's why John wrote this book. The entire gospel is about this, revealing the glory of Christ to us. So it's right for us to ask as we start this, what is the glory of Christ revealed in this passage? And there's two things we're going to see today that we're going to talk about and then hopefully bring some sort of application to ourselves today. So let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus himself was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. You know, at that time, weddings... Weddings were, listen, we have weddings today, uh, and I know we have, what's the phrase? I'm a, bridezillas. Am I, am I dating myself right now when I say that? Um, there's a thing, like weddings are a thing, but back then, weddings were like a seven-day event. And they had all of these things built around them. It was seven days, and sometimes even more than that, they were full of feasting and food and wine and drinking and celebrating. So here on one hand, running out of wine for the groom, the groom was responsible for the party, was a massive embarrassment. A, a massive like, 
social faux pas. Imagine going to somebody's house for Thanksgiving and there's no turkey. Like that, you just don't do that. You make sure you don't run out of wine. Even worse, there's evidence that in the ancient Jewish world, if provisions such as this failed, the groom could face a lawsuit. Man, can you imagine that back then, getting married back then? That's how serious being hospitable was back then in the Middle East and to this day, really. So this was truly, imagine this. This was a scandalous moment where like the wine runs out and there is a problem. And so what does Mary, the mother of Jesus, do? What any of us would do. She looks to Jesus, right? She says, okay, hey, Jesus. She says here, they ran out of wine. Look what he says. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, this is the, you get a little like, okay, Jesus, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love how Jesus says, just do what, do, do what he says. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, if we're honest, we read these words of Jesus, this is a surprising response, is it not? We like, Jesus, okay, that's your mom there, Jesus, all right? And we hear this woman, this phrase woman, and we're like, oh my goodness. But see, Jesus knew when he said this, it would be surprising. And then John, when he wrote in his gospel, knew it would be surprising, there was nothing cultural that says a man can't call his mother by the, by the name mother. But Jesus says woman. But this response is not disrespectful. For us today, it's probably the equivalent of calling someone ma'am. He is saying ma'am. Still a bit distant for a reason. But it's also doubly abrupt. Because he says this phrase after he says woman or ma'am. What does this have to do with me? which this phrase is used five other times in the New Testament. And every time it is spoken by a demon to Jesus. So when Jesus in, in, in intrudes the domain of a demon and starts to exert his power, when they were in control, the demon says, what have you to do with us, O son of God? We see that in Matthew eight twenty nine. The, the main idea of this phrase is this. I don't want you pressing in here. You shouldn't be coming to me like this. This is not your affair. So Jesus is doubly abrupt with his mother, calls her woman or ma'am, and then he says, this is not your place to be calling out my power. It does seem that his mom expects him to do something. But here's the funny part. He goes right ahead and takes care of what she asked. It's almost strange, isn't it? He could have very gently said, yes, mother, I know. I'll do it immediately. He could have honored and obeyed, like I tell my kids, right? That's what he did, but it's not what he said. So we have to ask this question. Why did he speak to her this way? What was he trying to communicate or to accomplish? The key we see here in this verse, this phrase right here, my hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. This phrase is recorded all throughout the book of John. This phrase, my hour has not yet come. 
And it's always referring to the moment of his death on the cross. So just think about this for a moment. We're in the midst of a wedding. And Jesus' mind is focused on his sole purpose. Listen, I love my oldest son with all my heart. But he lives in his own world. I will be talking to him and he is off in some kind of far enchanted place that I can't imagine. And, and, and this is a small picture of Jesus here, right? Haste, haste, haste. And his mind is somewhere else. In the midst of this party, all this celebration, all of this great feasting and drinking and eating, and Jesus focused on what? Where he is headed. But think of this. Why does Jesus connect this simple request? Why does he go right to his death? Think about the symbolism. This miracle of turning the water into wine is a sign. It's a sign of what he came to do. If the shame and the guilt of the bride and the groom represents the sins of this world, then what does the wine represent in his mind? What is missing from this picture that's necessary to turn the shame to joy? It's our second clue. There's one more clue here. It's these jars of purification. Not just jars or containers. Jesus picks these certain things and John records these certain kinds of jars to paint a picture. This passage is full of of foreshadowing of what is to come. It is oozing with what is to come. By choosing these ceremonial jars, Jesus was signaling something that we see in the book of Hebrews. That Jesus fulfilled the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. That he was coming to be the sacrifice. Why? Why? Why is he doing this? Why is he coming? Because those people, you, me, we are completely stained and dirty. We just sang one of our great hymns of the faith, right? There is a fountain. Redeeming love has been my theme and it shall be till I die. That is the story of our faith. And Jesus, in the midst of this wedding, is pointing to the fact that we are unconsciously sinful and hopeless and stained and dirty. My hour has not yet come. His focus was on this future sacrifice. And this future sacrifice, what he's looking towards, reveals something about his glory and his power. It reveals this. He has the power to bring new life. He's not just making a party better. He is. He is. Jesus comes to bring joy. Listen, this is a great picture of Jesus' humanity and his divinity all in this, all in this passage. Jesus was a regular, was a man at a wedding with people, feasting. He was. But he was also the divine who had much greater purposes in his future. The centrality of his death is the most important insight for understanding the Gospels. The death of Jesus is completely central to everything, to everything. 
And the reason for this is this right here is substitution. It is substitution. There had to be a sacrifice. What do we see in 129? In John 129 again. Let's look at it again for a second. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, look at the glory of this man who substitute himself to be the sacrificial lamb. The question over all these centuries, this right here, when animals were being slaughtered, they could have been all this. John realized all those little lambs could not and did not take away our sins, but they are pointing to the truly innocent and unblemished lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to die in our place and to take our punishment. But listen, the good news does not end there. We don't just receive new life. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Then Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Two things here is he... First off, there's no explanation of how this happens. Jesus doesn't wave his hands, doesn't snap his fingers. He just says, do this. And the obedience of the servants, this miracle happens. It speaks to his power. But two things jump out. The first is the containers. Think about this picture for a moment. They're completely empty completely empty, have nothing to do, nothing to offer. Before you know it, they are overflowing with wine. My kids have these water bottles and they put water in the water bottles and they put the, they don't know how water stops apparently and they just keep going and going and the water is always flowing out all over my floor. It's a beautiful gift for my sanctification. But the thing is, it's this great picture. This wine is overflowing. But it's not just overflowing cheap wine, right? Overflowing to get you through the day. It's the overflowing, but it's also the best. It's good wine. And it's this picture to us to remind us that when Jesus comes, when he does his work, there is this abundance There is this goodness. There is this, it is better than the things of the world. You see, wine in the Old Testament, it it really was a picture of abundance. So when you see this, this idea of wine, this word wine, it's this picture of really abundance and feasting and joy. And isn't that what Jesus came to do? To take what is empty, what is shallow, And then overflow it with abundance, with the goodness of life. 
his conversion of this large quantity of water into wine, it indicated the long-awaited kingdom of God had arrived. God himself had drawn near in the person and ministry of Jesus and the fulfillment of the promise of the abundant blessing of God was beginning to be fulfilled. So this reveals something about Jesus, about his power, that his power brings abundant life. Listen, the power of God in your life, his substitutionary work brings new life. But he doesn't just pay the sacrifice for our sins. His power also brings abundant life. A life that's overflowing with joy and celebration. This brings us right to the words of Jesus in John 10. John 10 verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. To have it abundantly. That's why when you run out of wine today, when you fail in wisdom and power and resources and patience and all these things, when you run out, when you fail to meet the requirements of the law, when you fall short, You need not fear because Jesus, your Lord, your groom, the master of the great wedding feast, he has infinite power and infinite love and is able, listen to this from 2 Corinthians 9, to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He is the overflowing fountain that washes over us and that we drink from. You know, of course, Jesus' power in this picture brought abundancy. Is that a word? It's a made-up preacher word, probably, to this wedding feast, right? Jesus being there made this abundant feast and celebration happen, right? And that's true today as well. In your life, as you pursue him, he will bring an abundant life to you, a life that can supersede the things of this world, that can give you supernatural peace and hope and love and joy in the midst of this world. But this passage and the truth of the word of God and the gospel is that we have this abundant life to look forward to. That the picture of this wedding feast is looking forward to the great abundant feast with God for eternity. Where we, his people, where we, his bride, we join our bridegroom, correct? And we celebrate this abundant life found in him. Think about this for a moment. Before there was a universe, there was God, wasn't there? There was God the Father, there was God the Son, there was God the Holy Spirit. Me and Connor were discussing the Trinity a few weeks ago, and Connor said, Dad, that makes no sense at all. And I was like, well, I can't, you know, I get that. But imagine this, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're living in perfect, abundant love for each other. 
perfect, abundant love. Throughout, our minds can't fathom it, correct? And out of their love, they create, out of their joy, they create, and here we are. But then there's sin, right? The fall happens, and we have this natural turn. Turn towards self. We turn towards ourselves. So what happens? Jesus comes to substitute himself and turn us back in to God. To turn us back towards him so that we can walk in the abundant life that we see in the triune God. That is the power and the abundance of God's life and our future in him. So as we begin to kind of land this plane today, we think about how his power leads to new life and his power leads to abundant life. Well, what do we do? What do, what do we do with this news? Go to verse 11. You see what his followers did. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They believed in him. Look at verse, um, look at verse 5. Jesus' mother said this to servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> this picture is, he has the power, do whatever he tells you. So we see two things here. We see belief and obedience, don't we? Belief and obedience. But I want to end our time today talking about two things that prevent us from belief and obedience. There is this idea, the first one is being superficial. Allow me just for a moment to be lovingly direct to you guys. You, you do know that, that there's something wrong with you. Sounds kind of mean. There's something wrong with me. You do know why you feel like you have to work all the time. You, you do know there's a reason that you feel like you're never good enough that you feel like you're never satisfied enough or that you're never praised enough. You do know there's something deeply wrong with us as people. But part of our issue is this right here, is we are okay at admitting that to a point. You would all affirm and say, yes, I know something's wrong with me. But we're almost scared to death to let the Holy Spirit shine his light on our souls. And we keep this superficial facade all the time. And here's what we do. We do some good works and believe some right things to drown out the noise of our souls. To just simply drown out the noise of all of that in our lives. Because if we're honest, many times we just simply don't want to deal with the depths of our sin, with the depths of the idols in our life. But I want to tell you this Jesus has the power. He has the power to bring new life, He has the power to wash away the sins to change the leper's spots. He has the power. He's full of truth, but hear this. He's also full of grace. 
He is the substitutionary lamb of God who came to take away those deep, unseen, unspoken, unthought about, untalked about sins and idols in your life. But if we don't ever take that step of truly exposing, confessing, dealing with, and turning from those sins, we're not going to experience new life. We're going to play a religious game where you are doing and serving and giving and learning all these things about God to drown out the noise of the sin in your life. When God today is saying, repent, I have the power to bring new life. And in light of this loving, graceful, truthful Savior, our response is to expose, confess, and repent to him. But we can't do that if we're living a superficial Christianity that only deals with the external. Jesus came to deal with the inside of the cup, not the outside of the cup. And it is so easy in this day and age. Let me ask you this question, because this is my question this week. How much time do you spend making yourselves look righteous in front of other people? And how much time do you actually spend being righteous? That was just for me. Nobody else in this room. We spend all this time. It's like all this fake exercise. Listen, if you're going to exercise, really exercise, right? Do the real thing. We have to move away from this external, superficial, to move to real belief. So the first thing preventing us today is being superficial. The second thing is just shortcuts. It's just shortcuts. We sit and we read about this overflowing, abundant life found in Jesus, right? We see this and I think we believe this. But we want shortcuts to get there. Belief is hard. Belief is long. Belief does not have a quick payout. Give you an example. We believe that we should have rest in Christ Jesus, right? We believe we should have this kind of rest. We know that's a Christian thing. We should be rested. But we take the shortcut of rest. True rest is found in this true exposure to the things of God, to true commitment to God, to true surrender to God is where rest is found. But we take the shortcut. Well, you know, I'm just going to sleep in on Sunday. I need rest. I know I need to go and be with these people tonight to be encouraged, to confess some sins, to walk through God's word. But I'm tired. I'm just going to rest. There's this great show on Netflix. I'm resting, right? I've got, we're taking the shortcut to rest. We see this abundant life found in Christ Jesus. And health and wealth preachers have co-opted this, right? To take shortcuts to the things of God. That we're trying to fulfill some kind of base need to have all this stuff. And we keep buying stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. But yet the hole's still there. Taking shortcuts taking shortcuts over and over and over again. So here's what I would encourage us to do today. This week, this moment, this word I made up. 
beholding belief. That we as a people would walk in beholding belief. Where we are consistently beholding the Lamb of God. Paul says this way, it's in Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unfailed face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image with one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We need to rearrange our lives to make beholding belief the center of everything we do. We as the followers of Jesus need to make beholding belief the center of everything that we do. For most of us, the center of what we do is our job and our families, correct? Don't raise your hand, but yes. We we think about our lives. Everything is organized around our families and our jobs. Listen, I get it. I have a family and a job, and and I'm prone to this. But our families and our jobs do not have the power to bring new life and abundant life. Only one thing has the power to turn water into wine, right? To raise from the dead, to defeat sin and death, to wash away the leper spots. One thing has that power. It's the glory of Christ. And we as the people of God, if we have any hope to walk in the joy of the Spirit, to really sing the things of God with the joy of God, if we have that hope, we must learn and commit and fight to beholding belief. That we as a people, we're almost like, I don't want to say zombies, that's the wrong word is zombies, but we are so controlled by the truth of who God is that the things around us don't affect us the same way it affects the rest of the world. So we're we're in in a political season, also a pandemic. It's a fun time to be a human in this world, isn't it? But we, as the people of God, if we learn to to behold the Lamb of God, if that is the center of everything we do, all the noise around us, the ups and downs of the world, the waves hitting us are going to hit us differently, aren't they? Let's go to Psalms 1. And I promise I'm going to be done in a minute. Psalms 1. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. On his law, he meditates day and night. This is beholding belief. And in verse 3, he is like a tree. He is like a tree. Church, hear this. The people of God are called to be trees. We're not called to be tossed to and fro, but we've made something else the center of our lives. It's not beholding belief. It's other things. This tree is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Here's what I I saw last week in this passage I want to encourage you with as I leave today. It says here, he yields its fruit in its season, and all that he does, he prospers. Many times in my life, I make the center of my life built around bearing fruit and prospering. Bearing fruit in my family and prospering in my vocation. Those are not bad things. They're not bad things. 
but they are not the center of a Christian's life. They are the fruits of a Christian's life. The center of our life is this right here. Verse 2. His His delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Our role is not prospering and bearing fruit. Our role is delighting and meditating through beholding belief. So if you have a card, a connection card, I want to encourage you to pull it out. And I, I would ask you to let me know how I can pray for you this week. What is the barrier preventing you from walking and beholding belief? Is it Maybe you're not sure how to read the Bible. You have problems doing those kind of things. Maybe for you, you have never truly moved beyond the superficial and exposed and surrendered your life to Christ. And you need to walk in new life. Let me know what is preventing you from beholding belief. Which leads us now to communion. One of the greatest pictures of walking in this, right, is the picture of communion. This picture that we, um, how do I say this? So if the center of our being as a Christian is to learn how to walk in beholding belief, one of the most important rhythms we have is weekly worship, isn't it? It's the worship, the communion of the body of Christ and partaking in the body and the blood of Jesus together. So I want to encourage you to take out your thing and to grab the wafer. And just for a moment, let's consider the broken body, the substituted body and lamb of God who was beaten for my transgressions. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my place. This is the body of Christ broken for you. We adopted um, Hattie Jane, I guess, two and a half years ago, three and a half years ago, four? Okay, a long time ago. And uh, adoption is this beautiful picture of she is my daughter. She's my daughter. But the picture of the Christian church is the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. We, we share as the family of God through his blood. His blood has made us a family. His blood was poured out for us and gives us abundant life. How good is our Savior? We take this, the blood of Christ, poured out for you and poured out for me. Beholding belief must be the center of our lives so we can experience the power of God in our lives. Let me pray.
Dear Lord, thank you for the good news of your gospel. For the good news that you took my place. Father, I just ask that you're that you would just gently speak to us this morning. Let us surrender and experience the power of new and abundant life. We love you, Jesus. Let us respond now with worship to you. In precious name, amen.